I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 11. I want to begin reading actually in verse 13, read all the way through verse 26, and talk with you for a few minutes about King Jesus and the prince of this dark world. Beginning in Luke chapter 11 and verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now he was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebul, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges." If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he, he takes from him all the weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest and not finding rest. It then says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house swept and put in order, then it goes and it brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. Well, that's quite a passage of Scripture. Uh, Jesus takes us into places that we find ourselves a little bit uncomfortable. As we've worked our way through the Gospel of Luke, it's not uncommon for us to see Jesus cast a demon out of a person. Uh, but here Jesus enters into theological debate about the source of his power. And he gives an expansive teaching on what happens to a person who straightens up their life but doesn't turn to Jesus. Again, I want us to think about the entire passage from this perspective, King Jesus and the prince of this dark world. Because what Jesus is doing is he is lifting a corner, a corner of the veil which hangs over the unseen world. His words, no doubt, illustrate the state of things which existed not only in the first century, but in ours as well. So he pulls back the curtain and he allows us to peer into an unseen world of spiritual reality and some of the activity that takes place there. 
He, he allows us to be privy to things that we're not normally privy to. He allows us to see things that we don't normally see. But he does all of it with a purpose, and the purpose is to inspire us to trust in him and in his power. He doesn't do it to frighten us. He doesn't do it to shock us. He does it to instruct us so that we could realize that behind the world that we are able to see, there is a world that we cannot see that is every bit as real. And it has an impact upon the world in which we live. So we notice in verse 14, Jesus has the absolute power over the demons, the absolute power of Jesus to cast out a demon. But I want us to stop and think about the context for just a moment. I went back and I read the, the final verse from last, last week's passage. And the previous two weeks, we've been speaking about prayer. Two weeks ago, we looked at the phrase that Jesus said, when you pray, speak your prayers, be people of prayer, men and women of prayer, boys and girls of prayer. And then he instructs us how to pray. He gave us a pattern. And not that we have to follow it every time, but it's a good pattern. It's a, it's a helpful pattern to follow. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And then last week, we looked at the idea of persistence in prayer, not giving up, being men and women, boys and girls committed to, committed to prayer. And then is it just by happenstance that the very next story that Luke talks about is a man that can't speak, a man that is mute, a man that has a demon that inhibits him or prohibits him from being able to speak. Now, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to take what I read last week and not think about it when I read what I'm going into this week. Or this is what I read yesterday in my devotions. Now I read something new in my devotions, but I don't think about how yesterday's devotion connects to today's devotion. So Jesus has been talking about prayer. Now he has a man who can't speak, a man who is unable to express the most wonderful and glorious of truths, love to someone or sadness to someone or to describe a beautiful sunset. We don't know how long he's been speechless. Maybe he's been speechless from birth. Maybe something happened in his life that, that now prohibits him from being able to speak. But what we see is behind it here, Behind his muteness, his inability to, to speak as a demon. Now, obviously, we shouldn't jump to the insane conclusion that every sickness has a demon that's connected to it. That's, that's, why, that's why good Christian people often reject the idea of spiritual warfare. They reject the idea of an unseen world of spiritual reality because there's a lot of crazies out there that draw un, unbiblical and untenable conclusions about things. But this particular man in this particular situation on this particular occasion was unable to speak because of demonic activity. What's the point Luke's making by tying these two things together, these two stories together, prayer and a man that is mute and possessed by a demon? Luke's wanting us to understand that prayerlessness is akin to being spiritually mute. 
To not praying is like not being able to talk to God because prayerlessness is not talking to God. When I read the Word of God, it's God speaking to me. When I pray, it's me speaking to God. It's engaging in relationship with God. It's hearing His Word by His Spirit as I read it. And then it's me responding to what I've read and to my needs and concerns and heartache and disappointment and pain and agony. But when I don't speak to God, I'm no better off than a demonized man who is mute. It's a spiritual war. Satan doesn't want you speaking to God. He doesn't want me praying to God. He wants me to be busy for God, but not praying to God. He wants my calendar full and my prayers empty. Well, you see, all of the things that I'm doing and planning, coordinating, and orchestrating, and it's good stuff, but it's carnal if it's not saturated in prayer. It's lifeless if it isn't empowered by God's Spirit. What God wants is a people that are a praying people, not a mute people. And so we won't be saying we're not demonized, but Satan wants to keep us quiet. Sometimes we're quiet because we're too busy. Sometimes we're quiet because we're too lazy. Sometimes we're quiet because we're too broken. Sometimes we're quiet because we're too proud. Regardless of what what it may be, Satan could care less if we're lazy or busy or proud or, or heartbroken. He just doesn't want us to pray. And so Jesus is lifting up this curtain. He's allowing us to peer in that there's things that go on that, that we're not privy to. And there's no reason to speculate on things we're not privy to. That leads to, that leads to problems. But here he gives us a little bit of insight into something. He gives us a little bit of understanding. There must be some connection. There must be some reason that Luke has put these stories together. Because Luke wants us to know that the prince of this dark world doesn't want God's people speaking to him in prayer. And the times that we, there's never a time when we don't need God, but sometimes the times that we need him the most is when we're least likely to pray. Overwhelmed with sorrow and disappointment and heartache and, and, and uh, an agony of soul, it's almost like we can't, we can't lift our eyes to heaven, we can't lift our, our voices to heaven, but if we get on our knees in the presence of God and mutter just a few words, the Spirit of God living inside the people of God will pray for us. And so Jesus just wants us to know there's a battle, and the battle has to do with prayer, and demons want to keep us quiet. Satan wants to keep us quiet. The world wants to keep us quiet. Indwelling sin wants to keep us quiet because they know that when we connect to God, good things happen. God's kingdom is advanced. God's glory is is revealed. God's people are strengthened. Strongholds are torn down. People are set free. And so this is a miracle, but it's more than a miracle. It's an enacted parable. That is, it's a real event. It's a historical event. It's, a, it's an event that actually happened. But by the context, we want to see that there's more to the story than actually just the exorcism of a demon, which takes place. 
Now, what Jesus is doing is he is, he is giving a visual illustration that he is the Messiah. By, by healing the blind, setting upright the crippled, returning speech to the mute. Well, these are the very things that the prophet Isaiah said the Messiah would do. Listen to Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of those who are blind will be opened, and the ears of those who are deaf will be unstopped. Then those who will leap like a deer, I'm sorry, and those who limp will leap like a deer. And the tongue of those who cannot speak will shout for joy, for waters will burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Right before their very eyes, right in their very presence, they're seeing Scripture being fulfilled. But their eyes were blind, their hearts were hard, the religious leaders. They knew these Scriptures, but those Scriptures didn't know them. Zechariah put it this way, and it will come about on that day, declares the Lord of armies, that I will eliminate the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. So right in their presence, messianic prophecies are being fulfilled, but they're so busy, they're so consumed, they're so tied up in their own spiritual agendas as Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees that they failed to see right before them God's Messiah was in their midst. And so what do they do? They, they, give a, they make a slanderous accusation in verse 15. They can't deny the miracle, but they can deny the source of the power for the miracle. So they claim that Jesus has a demon, that Jesus is demonized, that Jesus cast out demon by the power of Beelzebul, which is just another way of referring to the devil. And so they look at what happens, and their evaluation is he must be demonized. And then in chapter, in verse 16, others want him to prove himself. Show us a sign from heaven. Well, you, you wonder what more could he do? He just, he just healed a, a mute by casting out a demon. He's performed phenomenally impressive miracles, the kind of miracles that no other miracle worker has ever been attested to performing. And now they want to sign, prove yourself to us. And so Jesus responds in verses 17 through 20. It's a wise response, and, and the response basically is this. A house divided cannot stand. Why would Satan empower a person to cast out his own demons? Why would Satan indwell a person and then enable that person to cast out demons that are followers of Satan? It, it doesn't make any sense. It, it's not logical. It's illogical. A house divided cannot stand. I'd like to take just a parenthetical moment and just and stop here for just a moment and say Satan wants to divide your family because a house divided cannot stand. 
He's not a very creative being, Satan. He does the same things, he just dresses up in different clown garb. He will try to separate you from your spouse, husband from wife, wife from husband, in child rearing. I would say in, in our years of raising our children, that was probably the, the number one conflict between Jaylen and I, the, our approach to child rearing. And, and it wasn't uncommon for us to, to be at loggerheads and then just have to close the door at night and talk it out and work it, and work it through because we just had different thoughts at different times about different approaches to situations that our kids at different ages were going through. He knows that's a very difficult matter for people because we come from different perspectives, different backgrounds, different personalities, different ways of looking at things. And if we're not very, very careful, he will divide you from your spouse over that. And you can tell that he's doing it if there's a lot of argumentation about it. He doesn't want you on the same page. He wants you at odds with one another. Uh, sometimes it's over, over the use of money. He will try and divide a couple over the use of money. Rather than coming to a consensus and an opinion and, or maybe even getting help from somebody, they're just constantly at, at, at heads. They're, they're two different people. They come from two different backgrounds, two different perspectives. And rather than each one seeing how one can balance the other out, it just deteriorates and degenerates very quickly into, into argumentation. That is, if your home is a home that is with a lot of hostility, a lot of anger, a lot of angst, you don't want it that way, but it's going to stay that way if you don't realize that standing behind it is Satan and indwelling sin. Satan and indwelling sin. He knows your indwelling sin. All he's got to do is listen to you, watch you. And he uses indwelling sin and he uses differences of opinion to cause husbands and wives not to love one another the way that they ought to love one another. It's not that these are easy issues. Money is not an easy issue. Child rearing is not an easy issue. But don't let Satan cause your house to be divided. Parentheses ended. Now, uh, we go back to what Jesus is, Jesus is saying here. Uh, Jesus is saying that this, this is illogical. It's, it's ridiculous to think about this situation in that way, that Satan empowers another person indwelling him to cast out a demon. He gives a wise response. And then he goes in verses 21 through 26, and he gives us some very straight talk about a very difficult subject, and that is spiritual warfare. Here he wants us to understand that there is a battle for the human heart. And our foe is a significant opponent. Notice that he compares Satan to a strong man. And he says this strong man is fully armed. 
And the home in which the strong man dwells represents a person. It's going to be a person outside of Christ because Satan cannot take up residence in the home of a believer who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Though he can do great damage to a believer by a believer opening himself up as a result of indwelling sin. But not to indwell him, not to possess him, not to inhabit him. But he says Satan is a strong man fully armed. That's why we have to be wise as serpents, yet at the same time innocent as doves. That's why we have to be men and women committed to prayer, because he doesn't want us to pray. By praying, we can tear down strongholds. And so this one who is powerful, strong, fully armed, is overwhelmed by one who is stronger. That is, the Prince of Peace defeats the strong man, meaning the Prince of Peace is stronger than the strong man. It's not even a good battle. It's not even a fair fight. The one who is the friend of sinners is the holy, righteous, mighty Son of God. And so we, we have no need, excuse me, no need to fear. No need to live in trepidation. No, no, no need to live writhing in, in concern and, and uh, trepidation. Because we are indwelt by one stronger than the strong man. Greater is he who is in us than the one who is in the world. And Jesus completely has demolished the power of the strong man over the believer. But what, but Luke, what Luke wants to bring out from Jesus' teaching is there, there, there's no possibility of neutrality. Either you've got to be for Jesus or against Jesus. You've got to be with Jesus or opposed to Jesus. He says, he that is not with me is against me, and he who doesn't gather with me scatters. So we're with him or we are against him. But, but I want to close with a couple of final thoughts that I, I think are genuinely connected to this passage, but also prepare us for the Lord's Supper. Because the one that we, we follow is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. When God raised Jesus from the dead and seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet and made Jesus head over all things to the church, which is Jesus' body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Notice it says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. That's Paul's way to refer to demonic spirits. That's Paul's way to refer to spiritual powers. They're under Jesus' feet. 
When did Jesus defeat them? Well, he defeated them fully and completely at the cross. Think about the cross for just a moment. From a human perspective, the cross was the weakest moment of Jesus' life. From a human perspective, it looked like that he had lost the battle. From a human perspective, he is writhing in agony, in and out of consciousness, fighting for every breath, being taunted and maligned and belittled by his enemies. Cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, let's just grant for a moment, maybe that was his weakest moment in his human life. Maybe that was the most frail presentation of Jesus that we find anywhere in the New Testament. In his weakness, he was crushing the serpent's head. He was conquering Satan, sin, and death. If that's what he did in his weakest moment, think what he does from the Father's right hand. Now listen to Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and Jesus has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, when Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him when at the cross. There was a lot more taking place than meets the eye at the cross. There was a monumental battle taking place. And, and all of the eyes of hell were on that cross, and they were conscious of the fact that they were about to win the war. To kill the son is to win the war. To kill the son is to win the battle. They didn't realize that God was redeeming for himself a people for his own possession as he bore as Jesus bore God's wrath in Christ's body on the cross. And not only was he redeeming the people for his own possession, he was winning a war. He was winning the war for my salvation and your salvation. He was crushing the serpent's head. And so when the demons see Jesus, they see the one that's putting his feet on their head crushing them like a little ant. Let's assume it was his weakest moment. Maybe he had to do it twice. I don't know. But he crushed their heads, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. And as we take the Lord's Supper in just a moment, let's be reminded of that fact. If you're a guest with us today, and you're a baptized believer, we invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. I say baptized because baptism is the first step after salvation. It's not a, pro a part of the process of salvation, but it's the first step after salvation. It's a public acknowledgement that we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. So if a person isn't confident in their salvation enough to be baptized, then it's best that they with refrain from taking the Lord's Supper until they make that step, that public profession of faith, and, um, and then we would invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. 
Let me remind you that just to this back uh, table back here, I'll be standing. And we have a a gluten-free option. You may have celiac. Uh, You may have a a, a strong gluten uh, intolerance. And in the first service, I was able to serve a number of people. You might think, well, that's a a long way to walk from over there, Pastor. Nobody will be watching. They'll all be looking this way. Just if you're way over here, just walk around the the outside, and it would be my privilege to be able to uh, to serve you if we can assist you in that way. So let me lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we've come to this part of our service where we're reminded of the fact that the one that we worship is the one that crushed the serpent's head. The Lord's Supper reminds us of that. And Father, as our vice chairman of the deacons uh, leads us this morning, Chip Yankee, as Dr. Kyle Barrett, another of our deacons, leads us this morning, fill them with your spirit, use them to prepare our hearts to partake of your supper. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.